As we sang that song, I I could not help but think of uh, last week's message from Dr. Ernie Baker uh, out of Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, And the words of of that song are pulled from that passage of Scripture. And and what a a great song, uh, just praising and extolling uh, the majesty uh, of our God. And that was a a wonderful uh, message from Dr. Baker. Uh, last Sunday, and uh, but it's a, a privilege to be able to, to teach uh, again this morning, uh, and uh, hopefully uh, between this week and next week, uh, I'll kind of wrap up my uh, my series on uh, the social justice uh, revolution that I've been uh, walking through. Uh, and uh, this week, I want to look at one particular subject, and, and next week, I want to look at what do we what do we do with all of this? Uh, and with all of this uh, swirling around in our nation, we are still called. Uh, to be salt uh, and light. Uh, and we'll look at that more uh, next week. But, but right now, I would invite you to, to open your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 18. And as you are uh, turning there, uh, in August of 2019, uh, the New York Times Magazine published a, a special issue uh, of essays and reports uh, that was entitled... Uh, the 1619 Project, uh, and that special issue was uh, kind of intended to to refer to the, the year uh, that the first slaves were traded in America, uh, in Virginia. Uh, and the original description of the project said uh, it was uh, aimed, quote, to reframe the country's history understanding 1619 as our true founding and placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. Uh, And the the creator and organizer of the 1619 Project uh, was a woman named Nicole Hannah-Jones, and she received a Pulitzer Prize for uh, her work on that project. But uh, in uh, her, her lead essay, what uh, was uh, kind of the, the front of the, the special edition of that magazine, and, and she won that Pulitzer Prize uh, for that lead essay. But the category that she won the Pulitzer in uh, was a, a foreshadowing of things to come. She was not awarded uh, the Pulitzer in the category of history. She was rewarded the, the Pulitzer in the category of commentary. Uh, which means that even uh, the Pulitzer uh, Prize Committee, the, the board, uh, viewed that whole project as opinion more than historical record. So it was it was published in August of 2019. In December of 2019, it was a group of five professors from major universities and several uh, Ivy League schools among them who wrote a letter to the New York Times pointing out major factual errors Uh, and calling some of the project's other conclusions distorted and misleading. And there were additional claims of poor scholarship in the project and uh, made by many other professors and historians. One professor at Northwestern University, uh, Leslie Harris, said that the New York Times consulted her on the project, and this is what she told them. She said uh, regarding one of the, the project's main arguments, and one of the main arguments that they put forward was that one of the, the big reasons for the American Revolution was to protect slavery. Uh, that was a motivating factor is what the, the 1619 Project uh, was proposing. And this is what she said to them. She said, although slavery was certainly an issue 
in the American Revolution, the protection of slavery was not one of the main reasons the 13 colonies went to war. So you have multiple historians coming in and writing to the New York Times, but the New York Times stubbornly refused uh, to admit the project had any errors. Uh, but eventually, uh, and very quietly, they issued an update to their publication and to uh, what they had online. Uh, and they, they took out that very key phrase uh, stating that uh, 1619 being the, the true founding of America. And uh, like, like most things, they didn't uh, make a big deal out of the, the editing or the retraction uh, but they continued forward, and they, uh, this couple of months ago, or actually last month, October of 2020, another group uh, of 21 scholars issued a public letter, this time to the, the Pulitzer uh, Prize Board, uh, asking them to rescind the award that was given to uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, uh, who had won uh, for her lead essay in the project. Uh, and this is what they said in the letter to the Pulitzer Prize Board. They said, Uh, that the essay, uh, the lead essay, was false when written and it hasn't stood up to the scrutiny scrutiny from historians. Uh, The letter also noted uh, the secret changes that were made to the text of the magazine, that they changed the story. And they said this in the letter, the duplicity of attempting to alter the historical record in a manner intended to deceive the public is as serious an infraction against professional ethics as a journalist can commit. So, so this is revisionist history uh, at its worst, uh, and they were called on it, uh, and they, they quietly changed things, but they have made no serious retraction. Uh, and the, the Pulitzer Committee did not rescind the award. Uh, and there was a curriculum that was published alongside the, the 1619 project that was intended to go out uh, into public schools across our nation. And there are 4,500 public schools right now using that curriculum uh, to, to teach uh, this narrative, this story uh, of the 1619 project that numerous historians have said this is not true. That's a sobering illustration of how narratives are created. It's revisionist history. It's something straight out of 1984. But the creation of of false narratives is nothing new. Okay, Uh, that that is not something that is uh, new to the 21st century. Uh, And the the false narrative that's currently being embraced uh, by our culture, uh, this much broader uh, topic that we've been looking at the past few weeks of the the ideological social justice it's not merely related to uh, the nation's founding uh, and what caused it or or when the true founding began this is an an all-encompassing narrative you could call it a meta-narrative as i've talked about in the past it's a it's a worldview Uh, it it seeks to interpret and describe everything around us Uh, and in past weeks, we've looked at uh, the broader picture of this worldview, but, but today I want to zero in on one specific of this worldview uh, that's being uh, kind of pushed in and put forward because claims have been made that, that we in our present time uh, stand guilty 
uh, and have a responsibility for the sins that were committed uh, by our forefathers in the past. So, so what, do we, what do we think of that? What are we supposed to do with this concept of intergenerational guilt? Uh, am I responsible for something that my great-great-grandfather did? Now, are you held responsible uh, for a sin committed by someone else who has the same skin color of you, as you, uh, but you have no connection with them? Whose sin am I accountable for before God? That's what I want to look at this morning. And I've asked you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 18 because Ezekiel 18 answers all of these questions. And as we look at this chapter, what, what we're going to, to get to be is a, a fly on the wall. Now, we, we get to see uh, some other people being corrected by God. Uh, I love watching my, my younger son, William. Uh, he learned so much from watching his older brother get in trouble. Uh, and uh, so he just kind of looks and watches. And, and that's kind of what we get to do this morning. Uh, we get to see God correcting someone else and saying, well, hey, to, well hold on. We need to wait a second. Uh, and, and what we can glean from this correction uh, is uh, tremendously applicable uh, to our modern day context. And I just want to walk through this chapter uh, with you and, and see what God says uh, to the, the exiles, uh, the Jewish exiles who are in Babylon. This, that's who this is written to. Uh, in uh, 605 and 597 and 586, uh, there, were, there were three occasions in which the Babylonian Empire came uh, and they took uh, Jews from the land of, of Israel uh, and brought them out of Israel and brought them uh, into exile in Babylon. Uh, and uh, earlier this year, we read the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah stayed in Jerusalem and was the prophet to the, the people there during the time of those exiles. Uh, and Ezekiel and Daniel were prophets in the land of Babylon who were speaking to the exiles uh, in that land. But this is what is going to, to take place. And I'll, I'll, we're going to dive in and I'll kind of explain the, along the way. But as this unfolds, we're going to see three major uh, components or, or portions to it. And uh, the first portion is seen in verses 1 through 4. It, uh, and what God is going to do in verses 1 through 4 is he's going to address the lie concerning sin and guilt. Okay? Uh, look with me at these verses. It says, The word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And so God begins by, by addressing a, a, a saying uh, that was circulating uh, among the exiles in Babylon and it was circulating among the Jews who were still in the land of Israel. And that, that proverb is stated in verse 2. And initially, when, we, when you read it, it's kind of confusing. What is meant by this proverb? 
that the fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Well, if, if you were to, to put a sour grape in your mouth, what, would, what face would you make? You would kind of yeah, do one of those. But what they're saying is it's the fathers who've eaten the sour grapes, but the children who are tasting the bitterness of those grapes. In essence, it is the fathers who have sinned, and it's the children, the next generation, who are reaping the consequences of their father's decisions. That's the, the, the parable, the, the proverb that is being proclaimed among the exiles. And by proclaiming this proverb, what, what they're doing is they are protesting their innocence. They're saying, hey, we didn't get ourselves into this mess. This is my dad's fault. This isn't my mess. I'm just getting all of the consequences of it. And in looking rather to their, not to their own lives, but blaming their forefathers, they're, they're making themselves into victims. And God responds to this proverb very strongly, right? What does he say? He says, as I live. It's a very strong statement. God takes this very seriously. And when I, when I read this, I can't help but, but think of a, of a human father walking into a, a room uh, where his, his children are arguing and quarreling, shouting at one another. And, and the father comes in and, uh, and he hears the, the kids bickering. Uh, they're saying, you, you took this or you started this. I didn't start this. You started you know, all of these things. And, and the father listens. Uh, and after a, a, just a brief time of listening, he says, neither of these kids is seeing their role in this. They're just blaming the other person. And so what I envision is that what, what's the father eventually going to do in the midst of all this shouting, his voice is going to boom over and say, okay, enough of this. And he's going to show each one of those children their own sin. Say, hey, you, you know, you're responsible for this. You're responsible for this. You don't blame that person. You don't blame him. And that's what God is doing here. He's coming down and saying, look, this has to stop. You need to understand the reason you are in exile. You need to understand the reason for your current Suffering. God makes an oath that this proverb will no longer be used in Israel. And that doesn't mean that there will no longer be any occasion for the use of this proverb. But what it means is God saying, all right, I'm going to show you that you're the guilty party here. This is not because of your forefathers. This is because of you. And God would indeed show them their sin. And God sets forth a theological principle in verse 4. Uh, and that theological principle is at the end of verse 4. The soul who sins shall die. Uh, and God is going to spend much of the, the rest of the chapter unpacking that theological principle. This is the principle of personal responsibility for sin. If you sin, you bear the guilt. But some of you, you might ask the question about aren't there other instances in the Old Testament where God says that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon 
the, the children and the children's children unto the fourth generation, right? And in fact, I think that is what uh, the, the Jewish people in Babylon are thinking about when they're saying this proverb. They're saying, yeah, we are being punished for the sins of our parents. And it says it right there in God's Word. If you, if you keep your finger here in Ezekiel and you turn with me uh, back to Exodus chapter 20. Let's look and, and see what they were thinking of. Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. In the context of the Ten Commandments. And in verse 4, God says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so what, what Ezekiel is really addressing here is a wrong interpretation of God's word. They're saying, hey, look, we're being punished for our parents' sins. And Ezekiel says, wait, no, time out. Well, let's, let's really take a look at this. What this passage is saying is that there are times when, when parents sin... And the consequences of sin come upon the parents. Does that also impact children? Absolutely. But part of the, the covenant uh, that God made with Israel, it was the Mosaic covenant, it had blessings and it had curses. Uh, and if parents obeyed, the blessings would come upon them. And by the, just the nature of the way life works, those blessings would also come upon their children. And the same thing is going to be true with the curses. That if the parents disobey, and part of the curse was there's going to be famine in the land. And famine in the land doesn't just impact parents, it also impacts their children. So yes, there are times when the consequences of parents' sin impact the lives of their children. Another uh, practical way is if the parents are taken into exile, does that impact the kids? Absolutely. Uh, and so that's what this is saying. That uh, for those who are in continual rebellion against God, because all of that is qualified based upon what? For those who hate God. But for those who love God, what does he say? In verse 6, what does God do with those who love him? He shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And so... The, the reality here is, is saying that, yeah, there are times where uh, the consequences of sin will spill over onto others. And if children repeat the same sins of their parents, what will, what will be true of the children as well? They will face the same consequences. Uh, and if, if, unless children change uh, and repent and turn to the Lord, they're going to they're gonna reap the same harvest as their parents. That's what is being said here. But children are never judged for the sins of their parents. Uh, and Ezekiel 
uh, corrects this false understanding of Scripture by pointing to other Scripture. Turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 24. The principle that we see in, in Ezekiel 18 is really this principle here in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16. God says this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now that, that's the principle. The soul who sins shall die. And so again, it, think of it this way. If God is commanding this of human judges, why would he disregard his own principle uh, and bring judgment upon the children for the sins of the fathers? God doesn't do that. But what is it that, that's taking place here? Is ultimately the exiles who were taken away from Israel into the land of Babylon were judged for their own sin. And there was a, a false narrative being proclaimed among the exiles here. Uh, and the false narrative that they were telling among themselves is the same false narrative that each one of us is tempted to, to proclaim about our own suffering. What do we like to do when we are experiencing hardship? We like to find someone else to blame, right? goes back all the way to Genesis 3 in the garden, right? Uh, who did Adam blame? The, the woman whom you gave to be with me, right? So he blamed uh, Eve and God. God, you gave this woman to me. Okay, uh, and who did Eve blame? The serpent. The, the, the blame shifting is our natural sinful human tendency. Who who can I shift blame to? This is not my fault, right? Parents, did you have to teach your kids to do that, or did they pick that up naturally? Right? You didn't you didn't sit them down. Okay, now when you're trying to to proclaim your innocence, it works better if you blame someone else. You didn't have to walk through that with them. They just did that is pretty amazing right and that's the temptation that we all face we blame others we proclaim our innocence we hold ourselves up as victims and in doing that we turn others into the guilty party into an oppressor into a manipulator now in this this principle that we're going to be unpacking here does not doesn't mean that there is that there's no category of unjust suffering in the world. Is there unjust suffering? Absolutely. Is there such a category of innocent victim? Yes, there is. And, and we can't put things into any type of a, a system that says that there are no innocent victims. But we have to judge rightly, as we've looked at in past weeks. What we see in Scripture that there are innocent victims. Job was an innocent victim of Satan's malice. And what did his friends do? Even though Job was innocent, his loving, caring friends came and said, no, there's got to be some secret sin that you're being judged for. So, so we have to be careful uh, in, under, in assigning blame. We, we have to exercise wisdom, which is hard, right? I wish there was a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all answer to, to life situations. But we don't have that. Does systemic sin exist? Yeah. Have there been unjust laws in our own country? 
Absolutely. Uh, and uh, whenever we see them, as I said, the very first week we looked at this, we have to confess every sin to be sinful. Any laws that are unjust, we have to declare them to be unjust and work to, to address them and to, to make them nullified, to change the law. But we also, in, in so much of what is taking place right now, there's these big uh, accusations made of systemic sin and structural systems but, but we need to say, well, well, help me to see and understand that. Uh, and is, is there, is, we need to examine the evidence and, again, using wisdom to evaluate these things. The exiles in Babylon were claiming that they were suffering unjustly be, for the sins of others. And yet God addresses this false narrative that they were proclaiming and believing. And the truth that God proclaims to combat the lie of the people is now going to be explained in greater depth. So he gives this principle, the soul who sins shall die. And now God is going to defend that. And that's what we're going to see in verses 5 through 20, or really through 29. And as God defends and explains his thesis statement, uh, he's going to present three arguments of why is this true? Why is it true that the soul who sins shall die? Well, his first argument is... uh, in verses 5 through 20, that responsibility for sin is personal. And he illustrates this. Read along with me uh, these, uh, these illustrations that God gives. What we're going to see is uh, the tale of three generations. Okay, we're going to see a, a righteous grandfather. We're going to see an unrighteous father and then a righteous son. Uh, and as, as God gives this example, example through Ezekiel, This would have hit home with the exiles because this is exactly what the exiles got to experience in three generations of kings in Judah. Hezekiah, a righteous king, gave birth uh, to and was succeeded by Manasseh, one of the most wicked kings in all of uh, Judah's history. And then that unrighteous king had a son, Josiah, who was righteous and who made great reforms in the land of Israel. But, but look at these illustrations that, that God gives to show this point that responsibility for sin is personal. It says this in verse 5, If a man is righteous and does what is just and right, if he does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman in her time of menstrual impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge and commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, does not lend at interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous and he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. But if he fathers a son who is violent, a shedder of blood who does any of these things, though he himself did none of these things, speaking of the grandfather, the first generation, who even eats upon the mountains, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore the pledge, lifts up his eyes to the idols, commits abomination, lends at interest, and takes profit. Shall he then live? 
he shall not live. He has done all these abominations. He shall surely die, and his blood shall be upon himself. Now suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins that his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. He does not eat upon the mountains or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, does not oppress anyone, exacts no pledge, commits no robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with a garment, withholds his hand from iniquity, takes no interest or profit, obeys my rules and walks in my statutes. He shall not die for his father's iniquity. He shall surely live. As for his father, because he practiced extortion, robbed his brother, and did what is not good among his people, behold, he shall die for his iniquity. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father when the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to observe all my statutes? He shall surely live. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. It's a very important passage there. Very thorough explanation of this principle. And what we see is that that righteous grandfather, did the righteousness of that man get passed to his son? No. And then that unrighteous father, that middle generation, did his unrighteousness get passed to his son? No. There is no transference of guilt or innocence from one generation to another. Each of us stands accountable to God for our own actions, for our own decisions. But this reality of a personal responsibility for sin is the exact opposite of what is being proclaimed right now in the ideological social justice and this worldview that is encompassing and being embraced uh, by our culture. In ideological social justice, the guilt of past generations is only applied uh, to those of a certain skin color. It's not applied consistently. Well, listen to to this quote from from Jim Wallace, who's a a prominent ministry leader and theologian, and he is the, the founder and editor of Sojourners magazine. He said this in a 2018 article, said, Without confession... To the sin of white racism, white supremacy, white privilege, people who call themselves white Christians will never be free. Who's operating on this uh, worldview that, that the, the guilt of previous generations is placed upon us, and now we have a responsibility uh, to confess our complicity with it and to repent of their sin. And we've talked about this. Should we confess previous generations' sin to be sinful? 100% absolutely. But I can't repent uh, of their sin. I'm not held guilty for their sin before God. Uh, And again, we, we speak and address sin no matter 
who committed it, when it was committed, where it was committed. But we do not have uh, a guilt placed upon us uh, for their sins. That is exactly what we see between the second and the third generation here in Ezekiel. That the sins of the unrighteous father did not get passed to the son. And as we even just look at this idea, if this doctrine of guilt were true, what would be the implications of it? Okay? Uh, if you were guilty of the sins of your forefathers, salvation would be impossible. Because what is it you don't know about the sins of your forefathers? A whole lot. Okay? Uh, you don't really know what sins were committed, how frequently, uh, or, or any of that. And so if we are held guilty for the sins of our ancestors, salvation is not possible here and now. Because I don't know what sins were committed. You don't know what sins were committed. Uh, and the ideological social justice will tell us what sins our ancestors were guilty of without even knowing where we came from or who our ancestors were. History also shows this, that many other people groups throughout history have been made slaves. The historical record shows that there were more Europeans taken captive and made slaves by North African pirates than there were Africans uh, traded along the Atlantic slave trade during the colonial times. History also shows that there is one particular group of people who was traded as slaves so frequently that their name became synonymous with slave. The Slavic people, they were traded as slaves for centuries. And the word Slav is where we get slave. But we don't, we don't go in, in, into that arena in the ideological social justice. Right? That doesn't help the narrative. That's being very selective in the sins that you want to address and hold people accountable for, for their ancestry. And you're also being very narrow in in narrowing it down to the sin of slavery or racism. And again, if 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 this doctrine of guilt is true, there is no hope for salvation for anyone. That's what we have to see and understand. So why is all this being called for now well because again it has an agenda it, ha- it has a motive and a purpose behind it but this doctrine of per- the personal responsibility for sin is really seen throughout scripture not just here oh, I pointed to Deuteronomy 26 verse 14 you see Ezekiel 18 this same exact proverb is addressed in Jeremiah 31 verses 29 and 30 Jeremiah, again, he's the prophet during the time of the exiles in Jerusalem. He says, in those days, speaking of the future during the the new covenant times, in those days they shall no longer say the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. And each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Additionally, Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And he will render to each one according to his works. 
to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. The time of the great white throne judgment when every unbeliever will be judged. What are they judged for? They are not judged for all of the sins of their ancestors. They are judged, each and every one of them. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. No one is condemned for the sin of anyone else. We are all condemned by our own sin. Every unbeliever will be judged by their works and ultimately condemned by their works. And we too, as believers, will be judged by our works. We're not saved by our works. We are saved by grace through faith. But our works will be judged, not for our salvation, but for rewards what is seen in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 where Paul says for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body whether good or evil the personal responsibility for sin is so clear in scripture but the ideology of social justice is built upon the exact opposite really built upon a house of cards The collective guilt of one group of people and the collective innocence of another group of people. And both of those are dangerous ideas. To say that one group is completely guilty based upon the color of their skin and one other group is completely innocent based upon the color of their skin. And that is the the very height of racism. We have to remember that the soul who sins will die. But we all sin. So what hope is there? Right? That's a very scary and sobering statement that God gives to us in verse 4 and that he's unpacking now and that he's repeating. That leads us to the second argument that God presents in defense of his statement. The second argument is in verses 21 to 24. And his second argument is this, that repentance from sin is life-giving. Look with me at these verses. It says, But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? But when a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice and does the same abominations that the wicked person does, shall he live? None of the righteous deeds that he has done shall be remembered, for the treachery of which he is guilty, the sin and the sin he has committed, For them he shall die. God brings condemnation. The soul who sins shall die. But then hope is given uh, in in turning to God and understanding our sinfulness, understanding our rebellion against him. We are called to 
turn from our sin and to turn to him in faith. And God promises that that the wicked who repents and turns to him, he shall live. That that is the heart of the gospel. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. We see this elsewhere also in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. Speaking of God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Uh, and repentance gives life. Repentance turns away the wrath of God. If you want to see this uh, play out in the history of Israel, turn back to, to 1 Kings chapter 21. If you look at the, the heading at the beginning of the, the chapter, you see it, it's entitled Naboth's Vineyard. And what the beginning of the, the chapter tells us is that there was a, a guy named Naboth who had a wonderful vineyard that the king of Israel wanted. Uh, but he couldn't get it. And uh, the king Ahab, uh, his wife Jezebel, said, I know how to fix this. So she went and had Naboth slandered and put to death. And then she says to her husband, the king, says, hey, now you can go and take his vineyard. And the prophet Elijah is sent by God to condemn what the king of Israel has done. And he confronts the king. In verse 20, And Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he, Elijah answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah and for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin and of Jezebel the Lord also said the dog shall eat Jezebel within the, the walls of Jezreel and anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city the dog shall eat And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Now that is a proclamation of judgment. Right? That is serious. But look at how Ahab responds. Verse 25. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. What that is saying is there was nobody who was worse than Ahab. No one. But then look what happens. When Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. The most wicked king in Israel, when he repented, what did God do? He showed mercy. That is what we see promised here in Ezekiel 18. This is the promise of the gospel. That anyone who turns to God in faith will be forgiven. The wrath of God will be stayed. But as you you look at this, as we return to Ezekiel 18, you may be asking, well, why is there no mention of faith? God's just talking about works 
you do righteous. And God's not just saying try harder. And that's not the message here. What we see is that our works demonstrate where our hearts are. Our works demonstrate whether or not our lives have been transformed. That's what we read in James chapter 2 this morning, right? Without works, our faith is dead. And even in this passage, as we're going to see, if if we take a sneak peek, spoiler alert, verse 31. Even in this passage, God is going to, to say to Israel, you need a new heart and a new spirit. That, that, that's gospel language. That's new covenant language. That, that's describing what takes place when we look to Christ in faith. We become a new creation. We're given a new heart. So what God is saying is not try harder, but look to Him. Understand your need to be transformed. Understand you don't just need a tune-up. You need an overhaul. You need a new heart and a new spirit, and only God can give that to you. So what should you do? Look to God in faith and say, God, give me a new heart. Transform me. Give me faith. Grant me repentance and help me to live no longer for myself, but help me to live for you. That's what God is pleading for the people to do here. That's the the second argument for his thesis statement. Number one, there is a, a responsibility for sin that is personal. Secondly, that repentance from sin is life-giving. And then he gives a third argument in verses 25 to 29. And we could say, say it this way, that righteousness is defined by God, not man. Verse 25, God says, Yet you say that the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? When a righteous person turns away from his righteousness and does injustice, he shall die for it. And for the injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, when a wicked person turns away from the wickedness he has committed and does what is just and right, he shall save his life. Because he considered and turned away from all the transgression that he has committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. O house of Israel, are my ways not just? Is it not your ways that are not just? God is addressing the underlying assumptions of the people of Israel. Because what they were saying, in saying that we are experiencing the judgment for our parents' sins... They're saying, God, you're not doing right. God, you're judging the wrong group of people here. That that is the assumption, that is the charge against God. And God just says, no, that's not it, guys. And it's not me who's unjust in this situation. It's the people. They have a wrong definition. They have a false narrative. And that false narrative led them to curse and condemn God when the reality was that they were the ones who were guilty. God's judgment is always true and perfectly righteous. And God clarifies that it is the people of Israel who are not just. The people of Israel were seeking to define reality. And they, they included God in their reality. They wanted to define it and say, God, we'll let you be a part of this. 
But in their reality, they had an unjust God. That was a better solution to them than acknowledging their own sin. And the world around us right now is, is trying to do the same thing. We are seeking to define reality, but we've left God out of the equation. In his 1983 Templeton Prize address, Alexander Solzhenitsyn offered this summary explanation. The man who, who lived in the, the gulags during the Soviet era Russia, and in describing why all of the, the horrors of, of the Soviet era came to pass, he said this. He says, men have forgotten God. That's why all this has happened. Very simple statement. And that very simple statement also describes the, the, the social justice movement that it's propelled forward by its own definition of reality, where uh, God is excluded, uh, where there is no sovereign, transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And what we are seeing is Psalm 2 played out that the nations are conspiring on how can we break the bonds? How can we break the fetters? How can we go our own way? But ultimately, as we see in Psalm 2, God just laughs at the rebellion of man. He just he sits in heaven and he, he scoffs at our rebellion. He doesn't even need to act. He laughs at all of our attempts to unseat him. And we attempt to define reality, to define what righteousness is, but we don't have that power. We don't have that authority. God is the one who's created the heavens and the earth, the one who sustains all things, who is orchestrating all things to the praise of his glory. He has all of the power. We don't. God closes his defense there. He addresses the lie being told among the people of Israel. He defends the reality of personal responsibility for sin. But he does not end things there, right? God could have just given all of that and then kind of dropped the mic and said, okay, Ezekiel, let's just move on to something else. Let's, let's be done with this. But, but look with me at the last three verses here, verses 30 through 32. This is God applying the truth concerning sin and guilt. Says, Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, the Lord God. So turn and live. This is, this is the gracious and merciful promise of God after he has indicted all of them. The soul who sins shall die. Well, we are all sinners. We are all in deep trouble based upon that statement. But he says, now turn and live. Turn from your sin. Turn to him in faith. See his wonderful, merciful heart. And there is a promise of pardon here. That if you turn from your sin, you will be forgiven and made new. And that should encourage us to, to, to go to Him. That should encourage us to run to Him for pardon. love what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, If it were certain that God did not pardon sin, everybody would despair. 
And so again, there would be nobody to fear him. For a despairing heart grows hard like a millstone. Because they have no hope, men go on to sin worse and worse. But there is forgiveness with God that he may be feared. The devils never repent for there is no pardon for them. There is no gospel preached in hell and consequently there is no relenting, no repenting, no turning towards God among lost spirits. But there is forgiveness with him that he may be feared by you. Is what a wonderful effect pardon has on a man. This promise that we, no matter how sinful we are, we can always run to God. We can turn to Him in faith and be completely forgiven. What a promise that is. That is the promise of the Gospel. That God is, is pleading with the people of Israel to embrace. Don't embrace this false narrative that you're sinning because of your, or you're suffering because of your father's and grandfather's sins. Understand your sinfulness and look to me in faith. That is what God is saying. Pleading with them. And that should be a tremendous comfort to those of us who have trusted in Christ. And to those of us who have not trusted in Christ, what a tremendous invitation to look to him in faith and be pardoned. To be reconciled, renewed, and rejuvenated. To receive the pardon of sin and newness of life. But this whole chapter is also very sobering for us. Especially if you are here uh, this morning and you are a church kid. If I I get your attention briefly. If you're a kid growing up in the church, this chapter says that your parents' faith does not count for you. Which is sobering, right? You don't, you don't get to, to ride in to heaven in the family vehicle. Okay? You, you, it's not a, it's not a, a carpool lane. There, there's only one person allowed. And you will stand before God. And you will give account to Him for what you have done. If you placed your faith and trust in Christ, then all of your works don't count for your salvation the work of christ counts for your salvation and you get judged for rewards but if you have not trusted in christ you will be judged for your works you will be judged based upon them which is sobering we also see this husbands and wives you can't stand on the faith of your spouse you don't get the carpool lane either just sobering We will all stand before God alone. and We will give an account to Him based upon what we have trusted in. Our own works, our own wisdom, or have we trusted in Christ? Have we looked to Him in faith? And if we have been made new, if we have the new heart and the new spirit that God promises to those who trust in Christ, then what are we called to do? To live righteously. To live justly. And then all of our works are a demonstration. They are the fruit of our salvation, not the root of our salvation. But we must begin to see this is a very sobering chapter. And it's not just applicable to the world out there. It's very applicable to every single person in the church right here. That's what we have to understand. This has application 
for our external lives and our internal lives. And I pray that it would cause you to to think and to reflect upon its truths. And also, I pray that it would equip you to go and have conversations on these topics. As I've said, we can't shy away from topics or conversations on this topic. We can't run from them. We must embrace them. We must speak the truth in love. We must be salt and light. And that's what we're going to look at more next week as we come together in worship. But let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer now.